0: Turn with me to John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, about the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to you confessing our sin, our multiplied sins, Father. We don't acknowledge you as the God of the universe the way that you deserve to be honored. We don't love you even as much as we love ourselves, let alone love you to the degree that you deserve love. Father, in this we stand amazed that you love us at all, that you've given us your son As a propitiation for our sins. As a payment in full. For the sins that we have done against you. For our treason against you alone. You've given us your spirit, Lord. That allows us to recognize our need for a savior. And then recognize your son as that savior. And you've given us your word that demonstrates and shows your love for us time and time again. We deserve none of this. And yet you continue to bless us. You bless us with the rain this morning. You bless us with a beautiful morning, with a place to come and worship you. You bless us with the fact that we can covenant together under your lordship, under your headship, that you call us your body, that we are your physical body here on this earth. Father, we ask you now, in light of, in in spite of, All these blessings that you've given us, Lord, we ask you to bless us once again and empower the preaching of your word to our souls, to our spirits, that we would be built up in our faith, that you would be magnified in our lives. Lord, give us hearts to love you. Give us ears to hear you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. After the two two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Jesus was a man of action, All the Gospels chronicle how he acted, how he moved, how he traveled, interacted with others, healed, and even brought the dead back to life. One way that we, even we who hold to a Reformed theology, steal glory from Jesus and make verse 44 a reality in our own midst is that we often fail to recognize was that the life of Christ was a life completely built on faith. Faith in his Father, to do as he promised for his Son. Faith in the eternal, everlasting goodness of the salvation that he promised to those that he was going to give to his Son. We look to the Son as a supplier of our faith, as the author and finisher of our faith. But rarely do we ever look to him as an example of faith. We think that since he's God, he didn't need faith. He knew everything before it happened. He knew what a person would say before they said it. He could tell you exactly what you would be wearing three years from today. He could tell you what's for dinner next Sunday night. This is simply not the case. We're told in Luke 2 that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, verse 52. We are also told of the account of Jesus right after he was baptized being tempted in Matthew one or Matthew four one through eleven, this is that account. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, "If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread." But he answered, "It is written." you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. What would be the point of this account if it were not to highlight the faith of Christ? Why would there have been any temptation in any of this as Jesus knew the questions before they were asked? And if there were not the opportunity, the ability for Christ to fail in his faith, And if Jesus had not walked by faith, what comfort would be able to be gained from verses such as Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 16, which says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw with confidence near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How could the author of Hebrews have said that he, Jesus, had been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, if he hadn't had to walk by faith? In fact, chapter 4 of Hebrews is speaking of nothing more than the faith that Jesus had. And these verses are given to us as a reason why we can and should live by faith. Saints, we don't know exactly how much Jesus knew, how much he could see into the future. But we do know that he desired to bring glory to his Father, which only happens when he, just like us, walk by faith. So as we continue our study, let us determine here, now, to no longer rob him of the glory due his name by not wondering at the faith that he exercised in his walk toward the cross of Calvary. Let this verse not be said of us that he is not honored in his own hometown. There are a couple other ways that we who claim the salvation of Christ, who claim to be ruled by Christ, who claim to be his, can in fact not honor him. As John Piper has pointed out, there are at least three things we need to guard against. One is the pride of attachment to someone special. These people could say that Jesus grew up in their hometown. They knew him personally. But the emphasis wasn't on him. It was on us. We know Jesus. He grew up in our hometown. This is the pride of self, of ego. We can be the same way. Our church really seeks to glorify Christ. He is the center of all we do. In saying this, and these things should be our goal, we can place the emphasis on us and not on him. Second way, we can have a sense of entitlement. They figured that since Jesus grew up in their hometown, grew up in their homes, they had a right to him. He had to come home. He had to do miracles for them in order that others would know how important they were we can feel the same way we can say we're the bride of christ we're the children of god and then begin acting like bridezilla or one of those bratty spoiled undisciplined kids that we see across the street at wally the third way we can have an overfamiliarity with jesus we can, one way or the, f- the final way that we cannot not honor Jesus is we get so familiar with him that he's no longer God. He's just like the dog. He's there. We don't treat him with the honor and respect that he deserves. We begin to treat him and talk to him like a buddy, like a pal, like an equal, ignoring him when we don't think that we need him. And then, when we actually think that we do need him, then we go to him, expecting that he's going to give us. We need to guard against the sin that still remains in us, to live circumspectly, to ensure that we do honor him as Lord and Savior. I've said before as we go through the book of John that the chapter breaks and verse numbers aren't part of the original text. But John made it really easy for the scribes to know exactly where to place them. John, once again, has used one of his favorite ways to move from one point of time to another. He uses a timestamp. He did this in verses 29, 36, and 43 of chapter 1. Chapter 2 begins with, on the third day. Verse 12 of chapter 2 begins with after this, and then verse 23 begins with now. The accounts of chapter 3 begin with now in verse 1, and then verse 22 uses after this to change the focus, and then verse 25 begins with now. Chapter 4 opens with now, verse 1, and brings us to our verse 43 of our text today, which begins with, after. After the two days that the people of Sychar, a Samaritan town, sat mesmerized by the Savior that they had come to know as their own, a Savior who had graciously remained with them for two days and taught them. They had told the woman who had brought the news of Christ to them, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves and know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Verse 42. They had been that field white for harvest that Jesus had told his disciples about in verse 35. A field that they had earlier been sent into to buy food, but a field that they couldn't bring themselves to open their mouths concerning the Messiah about. Remember, these guys were in the ministry. They were the disciples of Christ. They had seen him perform miracles, not just the one that was recorded for us in the book of John. And they had heard him tell others about himself. They themselves had been infected, affected by him and believed that he was the Messiah, at least most of them. And yet they didn't see that they should share or have shared the truth of who he is and who they are with the people in Sychar. They had missed out on the blessing of watching the Father restore to his own the fellowship of those that he's called to himself. Later, Jesus will send them along with other disciples out to, into Israel to tell others about him. We're told that they then understood the joy of going and telling Luke 10:17 says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. But that will happen later. But for the last two days, they had been guest in a place that they would never have been comfortable in before. They had seen men and women who they disdained come to know the same Savior that they knew had seen them be affected by his teaching just as they had been. And now they were heading back into their home home territory. They were heading home. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Verses 44 and 45 have been used for centuries by critics, skeptics, and naysayers concerning the validity of the Word of God. They will say, and you may have heard, that the Bible can't be the inspired Word of God since it contains contradictions. Or they will say that there is no God, and they'll point to the contradictions in the Bible as proof of this. And they will use these two verses as an example of a clear contradiction. A clear contradiction is given one verse after the other. Verse 44 says that Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And then verse 45 says that when he went into Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Isn't this a clear contradiction? Didn't Jesus receive honor in his own hometown when he arrived? Perhaps, if these were stand-alone verses, that might be the case. But since they're not, since they're part of a chapter, which is part of a book, which has one main theme and one main character, we have to look at these verses in light of that. Jesus was just leaving a two-day teaching seminar with a group of people that should have been hostile to him. But instead of being hostile, they sat mesmerized by him. They openly acknowledged the the truth concerning who he is. They weren't there for the show. We are never told of any signs being performed in the Samaritan territory. He just gave them his word. And they hailed him as savior of the world. The people in his own hometown came to see him. They welcomed him, but they did so expecting to see, to be amazed. What verse 45 is meaning is nothing new. It's the same thing that we're told in chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. It's the same thing that we're told in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Yes, he was received in Galilee. He was welcomed. But he wasn't received as he was received in Samaria. This isn't a contest of hospitality. Who provided the better accommodations for Jesus? The better food? The better entertainment? The folks in Samaria came to Christ. For Christ. This was honoring him rightly. But as we'll read in the next verse, these folks, his own, came because they wanted to see Miracles. They wanted to see signs and wonders. They came for the show, which is exactly what verses forty-four through forty-six is meant to highlight for us. Verse forty-six: So he came again. He came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. The first sentence. Is, Sentence is given us to remind us of the first miracle given to us in the book of John. The second sentence in verse 46 is setting up the second recorded miracle in the gospel of John and setting up the scene for us to grasp not only the miracle itself, but the underlying miracle as well. Jesus came to Cana in Galilee. This official lived in Capernaum, which is about 16 miles from Cana, a walk that would have been all uphill. Cana is 1,300 feet higher than Capernaum. For reference for us, those things that we call mountains right there are about 500 feet tall. So they'll tell you exactly how much higher Cana was than Capernaum. We are told in the ESV that he was an official Other officials tells us that he was a royal official, a government official, even a nobleman. What we're supposed to see is that this man was a man of importance, of wealth, of influence. In this verse, we're told that his son is ill. And it's told to us in a pretty generic way. We all have kids who at one time or another in their lives were ill, which has never been an emergency. But most parents have had times when their kids are ill that is an emergency. This was the kind of ill that this official's son was. He had more than likely spent lots of money and time on doctors and trying to make his son better, trying to do anything to save his son. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Verse 46 was given to us to tell the background inf- information about the man who came to Jesus. Background information that is intended to make us wonder at the fact that the man came to Christ. He should have never come to Jesus. A man in his position should have sent for Jesus. Made him come to him. But in verse 47, we see this man not as an important government official, but just as a man, a father who cared deeply for his son and would do anything to save him. Again, the ESV tells us that he came asking Jesus to come heal his son. Other versions translate that word as begging, imploring, pleading. Those translations do a better job in emphasizing the tone and urgency that the man had in coming to Christ. He wasn't telling Jesus to come, nor was he just asking Jesus to come. This man was desperate. He was on his knees, seeking the last resort that he had in saving his son. His son was dying. Verse 48, So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Man, talk about harsh. This man is literally on his knees begging Jesus to save his son. And this is the response that he gets? This doesn't fit into the public relations campaign that has been built around Jesus to boost his character and standing. I thought that he was meek and mild. I thought he stood softly and gently calling, that he was the very embodiment of love. This doesn't seem very loving, very gentle, very meek or mild. We need to reconcile this verse with our version of who Christ is and even what it means to be a Christian how we are to act towards others to other people if we're ever going to truly honor Christ in the manner that he deserves should we seek to be harsh towards people no Jesus wasn't should we seek to be sin sniffers no Jesus wasn't. Should we be quick to call out sin when it's present? Yes, Jesus was. Even, so we, should we do this even when it seems like it's not the appropriate time? Yes, Jesus did. This statement wasn't made toward the official only. It was given to, To him and all those that were standing around him. Those that might have believed in Jesus, but those that believed in the miracles that he performed, in the works that he did, and not in the words that he said. Those who might believe, but who would believe wrongly about Christ. See, there is no faith in believing for a miracle when you or your loved one is sick the official is asking for a miracle in the midst of a group of people that came seeking miracles. They were happy that he was there. They were happy that his son was at the point of death, that he had had made a request for a miracle. They are like, wonderful! We get to see another sign, another great and amazing thing done by the amazing Jesus. Step right up. Get a ticket to the greatest show in town. Come see the amazing Jesus do another miracle. There's no faith required in this. This man seems to have come to Christ asking for a miracle for the same reason that any unbelieving person comes to Christ asking for something. They have a felt need. His son was dying. He had tried doctors, and that didn't help. Maybe he tried the local Roman deities. That didn't help. And then he heard that this guy who had performed a miracle was back in the area. I'm going to try him. Unbelieving people will come to Christ. They come with the same attitude that this man did. I have a need. Fix it. Not, I have sin. Please, Lord, forgive it and give me the ability and the desire to live for you. Unbelievers do not honor God when they come to him. Even when they come to him for a healing or for any other reason. Simply because they do not love God. God. They desire to use him. So was Jesus being harsh just to be harsh? Or was he doing the same thing he did in Mark 7:27 through 30? Grab your Bibles and turn with me there. Mark chapter 7. Verses 27 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know, yet he couldn't remain hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. In this account, we're told of a very similar situation with another person who was not Jewish, but who came to Jesus with a felt need. The woman first comes to Christ with a request to heal her daughter, to cast out a demon. Again, we're told that she, like this man, was desperate. She begged him for help. And just like with this situation, he doesn't respond to her felt need. He responds to her greater need, to the greater sickness that was not only infecting her daughter, but also infected her. Her understanding of who it was that she was making this request to. It isn't until that she acknowledges Jesus as Lord that he responds to her request. Now don't misunderstand me here. He didn't comply because she was theologically correct, or because she had given him a good answer and pinned him into a box. He was doing the same thing with her that he did with this official. He was drawing out her faith changing what she had faith in not in a miracle but in the one that could do the miracle in both instances Jesus is not rejecting the people he's rejecting the belief that these people held a belief that could never save anyone Back to John. Verse 49. The official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Look at how this man responds to that seemingly harsh words of Christ. In the original Greek, it reads like a very polite command, but a command given. In respect from one who is under subjection to his master. And notice how personal this request is. The official in verse 46 is then identified as a man in verse 47, and he's now making a plea, not for his son, but for his child. This verse is supposed to be read as a prayer, the same kind of prayer that Jesus will pray in the garden. When he earnestly seeks his father, in Matthew 26, verse 39, which says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. That's it. That's the response that this desperate father gets. Go. Where's the miracle? Where's the caring words of consolation by Christ to this man? What happened to the miracle that everybody came to see? Where was the event that all the people who were standing around came to see? there had been, in fact, a miracle. Only this miracle could only be seen by those who had been given eyes to see. And look again how this man responds to the seemingly harsh words of Christ. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Verse 50 is given as a resolution where the crowd Gathered around this man and Jesus, a crowd that came to see his show, but a crowd that went away disappointed. They hadn't gotten a show. A crowd that was said to be just as the people in chapter 2 were, those that believed because of the miracles they had seen, but those that Jesus would not give himself to because he knew what was in man, and no one needed to bear witness concerning them. This was the state of the people in this mob with the exception of at least one man, the official, the father. There had been no sign, no miracle given. The only thing given was the same thing that had been given to the Samaritan woman at the well. The same thing, that the residents in Sychar said had convinced them that Jesus was the Savior of the world. His word was given. And that was enough. Look at verses 51 through 54. As he was going down, his slave met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Verse 51 not only begins the ending of this account, but also gives us the interpretation of it. The official began walking home, but before he could get there, his servants, who obviously knew how much he loved his son and how much he was worried about him, met him on the road home. They came with glad news concerning his son. He'll live. He's better. The father would ask them when his son became or began his recovery, That question is tied directly into the fact that his servants could tell them exactly when it happened. They had been caring intently for this son, tending to him personally, and were able to say with complete assurance when he took a turn for the better. The seventh hour, which is exactly the same time when Jesus had told the father that he should go because your son will live. The details of when his son began to take a turn for the better was for the father not confirmation concerning his son, but it was confirmation concerning the unique son who had healed his son from 16 miles away in an instant. We're told in verse 53 that he believed, and not only did he believe, that his entire household believed. So what are we supposed to glean from that verse? What's the Lord telling us here? That the family of those that come to Christ are immediately saved by their faith? That others can be brought into our kingdom, into the kingdom of God on the merit of our faith? No. Just as with the people in Sychar, God has a chosen set people, a field that is white, ready for harvest, and it's through his spirit that he works, that he worked in these people in bringing in this harvest. What we're to be amazed at, to wonder at, is the grace of God as shown to us through his son, who through a single spoken sentence healed this official's son the same unique Son who through a single spoken sentence brought all things into being. Genesis 1:3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. We are not meant to marvel at the sign. We are meant to marvel at the sign giver, at the sign maker, at the one who gives us his word and who is the word. We are meant to draw strength in our faith from this account. The Father did. I'll show you just how much a single command from Jesus changed this man, healed this man, gave this man the ability to bring honor to Christ. Let's back up a bit in this account. We're told in verse 47 that as soon as this man heard that Jesus was in Cana, he left Capernaum and started heading toward him. We're also told that when he found Christ, that he pleaded with him to come and heal his son, that Jesus didn't go with him, but told him to return home that his son had been healed. So let's look at verses 51 through 53 again. As he was going down, his slave met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. When he asked his servants when his son began to get better, he was told yesterday about the seventh hour. We are also told that he knew that this is when Jesus had given the command for him to return home, that his son would live. So what? Well, here's what. The seventh hour is one o'clock. Cana in Galilee is 16 miles from Capernaum. The average human walks three to four miles per hour. You guys doing the math here? which means that the father had probably started walking towards Cana around 7 o'clock in the morning. He arrived in Cana before 1 o'clock. We know that because the command of Christ that his son would would be healed happened at 1 o'clock. He had been commanded by Christ to go. Return home. Go, your son lives. Wouldn't it be reasonable to think that the father, who had been so desperate for the life of his son, practically begging on his knees for Christ to heal him, wouldn't it have been reasonable to think that he would have hurried home? If he could make that trip uphill in less than four hours, he could have certainly made that trip downhill the same day to get home to verify the fact that his son was, in fact, better. And yet, he didn't. He stayed the night. He got a room somewhere, got a meal, and then went to bed. In fact, he probably slept in and had breakfast before starting home the next day. We know this because his servants met him on the road to home. And after they told him that his son was healed, when he asked him, When it happened, they answered, yesterday, the seventh hour. So what happened in this man? A miracle happened. What happened is that the father who came to a Christ that he believed that could do signs and wonders, walked away believing in a Christ that was the Savior of the world. A Christ that can be believed, can be trusted, can be counted on. His actions after speaking with Christ are evidence of faith in action. Not his actions prior to speaking with Jesus. There's another account given to us of another person who lived in Capernaum, who came to Christ for healing in Matthew chapter 8. Says When he, Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my house. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under, under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servants, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is faith in action. The word that Jesus spoke to the desperate, hurting father brought him life. It changed him and made a difference in him to the point that his very countenance and his actions were affected by it. Where he had come to Jesus begging for Jesus to come and heal his son. Where he had hurriedly walked from Capernaum to get to the miracle worker in a desperate last ditched effort to save his son. A single encounter with the Savior of the world had changed him. The word of God had given him peace and his life proved it. How about us? Have we been given the ability to see Jesus as a savior of the world? Or are we still in that category of those who welcome him but don't honor him? Our lives, our actions, prove which we are. Do we live trusting in the Savior? Not worrying what might happen? Not trusting in our wealth, our title, our jobs, or our government for our security? Do we panic? when we hear that we might get COVID-19 do we fret when we see riots breaking out all over the place and wonder what has happened to our country look again at the command given by Jesus to this father in verse 50 Jesus said to him go your son will live which part of this command brought life to the man The command to go? No. The command that his son would live. This man, who had moments before been desperate, begging, pleading with Christ to come and heal his son, was confident enough in the truth that his son would live, that he delayed going. He rested in the comfort of the word of God, He had a nice meal, a quiet, relaxing evening. And then he began strolling home the next morning. Does this resonate with you? Can you say that this is your life experience? Can you trust the word of God enough that no matter what happens, no matter what seems to be happening around you, you can rest in the truth that the Lord has promised. That he will deliver. But perhaps this is exactly what's bothering you. What causes you concern. That keeps you fretting. Because the Lord never promises us an easy life health, wealth, or even happiness. But are these the things that matter the most to us? Because what he does promise is reconciliation with his father. He promises life eternal, joy that this world can never give. Can you trust jesus trust that his ways his commands are right trust that though you or your loved one is suffering here in the temporal that it's for their good and for his glory trust that the loved ones who refuse to come to christ will be dealt with righteously. Justly. Trust that nothing can separate you from God, from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. And then trust that no matter what comes your way in this life, what we consider good or bad is from the Father. And it's exactly what he has deemed prudent in our life for that moment. And it's not cruel. It's not petty. It's not mean. If you know Jesus like this father came to know him, then you know that he loves you. Loves you enough to die for you. And then give you his spirit, which enables you to live for him. So, what does your life look like? Faith in action or belief in a miracle worker? Let's pray.